Inequality is an American institution, maybe the American institution. It's part of our history, and it's part of our present. But in the 20th century, one of the great forces against racial inequality was the rise of labor unions and the way they ushered millions of African Americans into the middle class and into a rare state of security and independence. But even with all the power the unions helped gain for African Americans, they couldn't entirely defeat racial inequality, and they struggled specifically to beat back racism within their own ranks. I'm Stephen Henderson. And I'm Laura Weber-Davis. You're listening to Created Equal, a new podcast that explores modern issues of inequality through the lens of history. So today we bring you a story about the limits of union power to overcome all the different ways systemic and individual racism held black people back. The opportunities that the unions created for African Americans were really fragile, and they were subject to disruption for the most minor slip-up or infraction. And that right there, Stephen, that was exposed in this story of how one man's livelihood was destroyed with a simple kiss. From WDET in Detroit, this is Created Equal. This country, our courts are the great levelers. And that the rights of every man are diminished when the rights of one man are threatened. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. Founded on the principle, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. All men are created equal. My family moved to Detroit in 1958 when my grandfather went to work with UAW President Walter Ruther. This was when the union was struggling to define what role it was going to play in the burgeoning civil rights movement. Already, the union and the city's booming auto plants were a big part of the power behind creating a new black middle class in America. And of course, the black middle class today in America owes its existence largely to the opportunities that were created in those auto plants. Detroit had an incredibly vibrant civil rights movement in the 1940s, 1950s, the 1960s. This is Kevin Boyle, professor of history and social movements at Northwestern University. And one hunk of that movement was ordinary people inside the UAW demanding racial justice for themselves and by extension for their communities and their families. And that took place inside the UAW. And this is just one tiny, tiny little bit of that that didn't work out. What he's talking about right there is the experience of a man named James Major. He worked at the Dodge Main Auto Plant in Hamtramck, a city that sits like this little donut hole within the borders of Detroit. James Major had established a middle-class life for himself as a union employee at the Dodge plant. But, Laura, let's start even before that, before James Major even enters the picture. Like every other narrative about class and power in America, the story of the unions is really complicated. It's freighted both with extraordinary promise and with damning inequality. Nowhere has that been clearer than right here in Detroit. Mm. Here, when you talk about Things like the strength of the union, people really get it. That's Lester Spence. He's a professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore and a native of the Detroit area. 
He says the unions historically made the individual more powerful because they were part of a group. And that idea is in direct conflict with the every man for himself ethos that we hear pushed so often today. Lester knows about this, not just because of his work at Hopkins, but because like my story, his story is personal. So you go back 40, 50 years where you could, you know, my dad's a union guy. My brother's a union guy where my dad could basically get a job, um, get a job at a plant, make decent enough wages to basically provide for us to send two of his kids to, to, to the University of Michigan to provide for his grandkids, right? right. Have a nice, uh, nice crib, et cetera. And he's not alone in that, even among black folk. At one point in black American history, you couldn't really swing a shovel without hitting someone whose opportunities were rooted firmly in unionism and in those auto plants. That's what brought millions of people north through the Great Migration, and that includes my family and Lester's family in the late 1950s. And that actually, that drives productivity. That creates the context in which people can be kind of innovative. Economic security, stability, a future. These things in the African-American community, they all derive from the power of unions. So we know that the unions led to a chunk of the civil rights movement, a significant chunk. Absolutely. But were the unions bigger than race? Is it possible that even though unions helped eliminate those facets of inequality in American life, that racism itself is in fact more powerful than even the unions, especially within the individual? Let's follow James Major onto the shop floor. And before I even continue, let me just say, I need to disclose that I actually am a union employee. Yeah, disclosure made. Why, thank you. So African-American men heading in for work at the auto plant knew that it wasn't going to be a cakewalk. But the trade-off was... Again, Kevin Boyle. That you were going to be able to provide for you and your family in a way that, as a blue-collar worker 20 years before, would have been unthinkable. Before workers organized, black men and all women got a really raw deal. In the early 20th century, African-Americans could work in the foundry, which was one of the worst places to work. They could work in the paint room, which was a horrific place to work. But you couldn't work on an assembly line if you were African-American. Women tended to be given jobs in plants that fit with kind of the stereotype of a woman. So they tended to be, say, sewing jobs. You could work doing, making seat cushions. Um, but you wouldn't put them on an assembly line. And then that started to break down really with World War II. And that's where the story that I picked up in 1955, in a sense, really starts. James Major, who's African-American, worked on the trim line with a partner who was a white woman, Catherine Young. December 22nd, 1955, was that year the last day of production before Christmas. And so what happened was that on the last day of production, the people who worked on the trim line had a party. And they brought in food, they brought in alcohol. The line kept moving. So... They're having their party while they're doing their job, which 
should tell you that at least in 1955, if you were a customer of the Chrysler Corporation, you probably didn't want the car that was made on the last day of production before Christmas. (laughs) So they're having a party. James Major and Catherine Young got ahead of their production, and then they went down to the next pair, which happened to be another white woman, Leona Hunt was her name, and a white man whose name was Jim. And then they went off to get a drink together. Catherine Young, this white woman, she suggested that the four of them exchange a Christmas kiss. James Major, who was African-American, kissed Leona Hunt, the woman from the next pair down, who was white, kissed her on the cheek. That was it. That's the entire incident. Except that, all of a sudden, word started to spread around the line that this black man had just kissed a white woman. And a number of the white men who worked on the line just got enraged by this. They stopped Leona Hunt, the woman who was kissed, to say, what the heck happened here? And wanted to know what he had done to her. She kind of panicked, it seems, in the moment. You got this guy standing in your face screaming at you, what happened here? She said, he kissed me, but I didn't want him to. He just went ahead and kissed me. All hell broke loose. Because all of a sudden, this incredibly innocent thing, this Christmas kiss on the cheek, started to edge just started towards the dynamic of lynching. All of a sudden, there's the fear that James Major is going to become a target. He's crossed the most dangerous line in American race relations, which is the line that combines race and sex. And that's where lynchings occur. James Major very quickly slipped away off to the bathroom, um, get himself out of the circumstances. Management kind of swoops in because their job is to make sure, A, the line gets back to running, and B, there's no violence inside their plant. They swoop in and take both James Major and Catherine Young, his partner who suggested the whole thing at the start, um, up to management's offices and basically say, we're getting you out of this plant and um, disciplining you for this action. So they escort them out of the plant to make sure they get out of the plant safely, but they also make it clear that they don't have much intention of bringing them back into the plant and giving them their jobs back. And they fired James Major. They don't take that lying down. They go down to their local, the OAW local hall, which is right near the plant, and say they want to file a grievance. They've been unfairly treated because of this incident. The local doesn't want to file a grievance because they know how uptight everybody is and it's about race and it's about sex. So they kind of put them off, but 
Major and Young are not going to be put off. So they go down to the UAW national headquarters, down to Solidarity House, and demand a right to file a grievance. And they do. They file a complaint. Meanwhile, back in the plant, um, there's all sorts of rumors flying around that James Major and Catherine Young, both of whom were married, were actually a couple, that there was all sorts that they were having an affair, and it had been that that had driven the whole thing. People in the plant who are enraged over this and now are spreading rumors are saying there's no way these people should be allowed back in the plant and there's no way the union should be standing up for them. But they vehemently denied that there was any sort of romantic connection between them at all. They maintained all along they were just really good friends. Yes, and they had been good friends, which was a huge part of the problem. James was not a small man. James Major had, he was born in the South and then had come up to Detroit like an awful lot of African-Americans had. Um, He had come to Detroit actually in hopes of making a career as a boxer and that didn't quite work out. It's a tough way to make a living. And so he ended up serving in the military for a number of years and then he'd gotten out of the military, stationed in Europe and had come back to Detroit and gotten this job at Dodge, Maine. Now, the reason I bring this up is that what that does is it plays into the white stereotype of someone, of a black man to be afraid of. When he got the job, he's assigned to work with this um, white woman, and they got to be friends. And that had already gotten the rumor mill started, that a black man who had this physical appearance of a threat hanging out with a white woman couldn't simply be that they were friends. You weren't supposed to do that. There had to be something more going on here. So the rumors had already started to circulate. And in fact, their foreman had come over to him a couple of times and said, you guys got to stop spending time together. This is not good. And they'd ignored him. So that when this kiss suddenly happens, it takes those rumors and it heightens them to this really dramatic level. great power of the UAW for ordinary people in the 1950s and 60s in a city like Detroit, black or white, was that you got security and stability in your economic life that could have repercussions for generations to come, right? You had an income where you could buy a house. You had an income where you could buy a car. You had an income where maybe you could send your kid to college. That's a remarkable thing. And what happened because of this one moment, this absolutely meaningless kiss on the cheek, is he got cut off from that. UAW had explicitly committed itself to racial equality among its members. It's committed to the idea of civil rights, and it fought very hard for civil rights in an awful lot of ways. But when you get down on the shop floor, when you went into the trim line at Dodge, Maine, it was a different story. There was a lot of racial tension that cut through the factories. The thing that drew me to this story, the thing that really made it stand out, is the obviousness of it that a black man 
kisses a white woman in an auto plant in 1955, the same year as Emmett Till. And the white response to that is so predictable. What isn't obvious is what the heck James Major and Catherine Young were doing. They're the ones who clearly were breaking the rules and doing it in a way that they should have known was dangerous. So what in the heck made them do that? I'm glad you asked me that. Here's what I got from my discussion with James Major, and it was really kind of the critical piece. And I talked to him, I don't know, it was decades and decades after this happened. When I called him on the phone, the pain of that moment, the anger of that moment was still with him. And what he told me was he and Catherine Young, absolutely, they were friends. They were also attracted to each other. Didn't do anything about it. There was nothing going on between them. But what makes it so dangerous is it crosses the color line. And in 1955, Detroit, that was a really dangerous thing to do. The man was from the South. It wasn't as if he had no clue about the danger of kissing a white woman. But they did it because there was this emotion running through them that human connection that brought them together. And then this fierce racial response that comes from it. And it's that combination of it that makes it such a fascinating story to me. Thanks so much to Northwestern University history professor Kevin Boyle. Stephen, we hear a lot about why the unions have mattered and mattered in creating specifically a middle class. But why do you think it is that they have gotten such negative attention from a business owner's perspective? There have been so many arguments that I think in some cases have been really salient about why the unions have hurt businesses. Yeah, well, so the first thing you got to say is no one relinquishes power without a struggle. No one relinquishes power voluntarily. The union was about trying to take some of the power that business owners had and distribute it more evenly among the workers. And so the natural pushback to that, of course, by the business owners is to tarnish that union, to say, that's not really helping you. I help you by paying you. I help you by making sure you have a job. And so unions uh, became the subject of this really intense anti union campaign that's run by business, that's run by uh, the Republican Party, uh, which uh, is, of course, supported heavily by business, more heavily than the Democratic Party. And so over decades, uh, they've come to this place where in a lot of people's minds, they're associated with bad things in the workplace as opposed to the positive things that they helped create. Fair wages, equal wages, sick time, health care, all of these things that we now take for granted, they have their roots in unionism. But isn't it fair to say that at some point the unions became too bloated? And that's the flip side of what I just said before, which is that the unions themselves became well, they just sort of be, it fell victim to their own success. And we see that all the time in America, right? Institutions that start out small and pure and with really clear missions end up with really vague missions and, and activities when they get larger and when there's too much sort of comfort, I guess, associated with, with their existence. Right. But how do you get back to a place where the union's working for the workers again in a way 
that is considered substantive to moving forward in America? Well, our modern economy is helping them out quite a bit. Think about the instability that people have in their lives, the insecurity they have around their jobs, the fact that they see their wages not rising the way they think they should. And so there's this opportunity now that unions have to make this make their case anew to a new generation of workers and to say, we can make it better for you. And I think uh, we got to give credit here. There are some unions that are doing that really effectively. The UAW's membership is growing. It's growing slowly, but it is growing after years of dwindling. But there is still this reluctance, I think, to believe that unionism is the way forward. And so it's a tough road. I mean, union unions will never get back, I think, to the place that they were in uh, sort of the middle of the last century. And, and that's unfortunate because we have huge classes of people who need the push forward that African-Americans got from the unions in that time. So are you saying that maybe the unions will become strong again within other marginalized communities that have not yet seen the full realization of organization, like other brown communities or or, or something like that? I think that's right. And, and the real challenge, of course, is the most marginalized uh, community in, in many states is – the poor white community. And historically, that community has been uh, more reluctant, especially in the South, to embrace unionism because of this messaging about what unionism did partially for African-Americans, but also what uh, unionism did supposedly to business and business owners. It's really hard to sell those folks on the idea that their jobs would be more secure, their lives would be more stable if the union were part of the work environment. On the next episode of Created Equal, we'll look at the origins of the word carjacking and how naming the crime may have made it sexier and maybe made the problem worse. It was amazing that once we came up with the name, kind of took on a life of its own. Created Equal is a podcast from WDET in Detroit. The executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Our producer is Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Our engineers are Sam Bobian and Connor Anderson. Our theme is by Will Sessions. I'm Stephen Henderson. Thanks for listening. WDET's work with the Detroit Journalism Cooperative is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Knight Foundation, and the Ford Foundation's Renaissance Journalism Project.